The Guardian. There is no permanent version, but a book finally, you know, it's got to go to print. So that's what we have. But it's still only a photograph of a moment. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. This week we're looking at the ephemeral, at disappearances in literature, the fleeting in a literal sense. If I could predict what was going to happen in the chapter, I just deleted it. And sometimes simply the choice of the author to create absence on the page. I wasn't quite aware how disorienting or perhaps distressing in parts the the lack of things to hold on to can be. One of the great pleasures of doing a weekly books podcast is the connections it enables one to make, the patterns that emerge from the interminable piles of dead trees. One such has just emerged for me through the work of two ostensibly very different debut novelists and an American poet who has become known as the rock star of modern poetry. This particular connectivity trail actually began several months ago when we interviewed another writer, Van de la Vida, about her novel The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, which is about a woman who stages her own disappearance. It struck me then that this scenario had channeled the zeitgeist, saying something profound about identity or the lack of it in our modern era. But then I went back to the poem from which the book took its title by the magnificent Sufi poet Rumi, who way back in the 13th century reflected on the possibility of simultaneously being and not being. You are sitting here with us, but you are also out walking in a field at dawn. You are yourself the animal we hunt when you come with us on the hunt. You are in your body like a plant is solid in the ground, yet you are wind. You are the diver's clothes lying empty on the beach. You are the fish. In the ocean are many bright strands and many dark strands like veins that are seen when a wing is lifted up. Your hidden self is blood in those, those veins that are lute strings that make ocean music, not the sad edge of surf, but the sound of no shore. It's of course the poet's job to capture the geist of this and any other zeit, and we'll be hearing more about that later from Eileen Miles. But first, back to disappearance with the novelists Martin McInnes and Idra Novi, who by uncanny coincidence have both picked up and run with the theme. In McInnes's Infinite Ground, a semi-retired police inspector is called in to solve the mystery of a 29-year-old office worker called Carlos, who vanished without trace during a family meal at a local restaurant. In Novi's Ways to Disappear, a 60-year-old Brazilian novelist disappears into an almond tree. We begin by hearing Idra reading from the opening of Ways to Disappear. In a crumbling park, in the crumbling back end of Copacabana, a woman stopped under an almond tree with a suitcase and a cigar. She was a round woman with a knob of grey hair pinned at the nape of her neck. After staring for a minute up into the tree, she bit into her cigar, lifted her suitcase onto the lowest branch, and climbed up after it. Would you look at that, one of the domino players in the park said, as the woman climbed higher, exposing the frayed elastic of her cotton underwear and the dimpled undersides of her thighs. The domino players were about to break for lunch, but didn't think it was right to leave a woman sitting in an almond tree with a cigar and a suitcase. Julio, the ladies' man, was selected to investigate. 
To prepare for the task, he gave a pinch to the tips of his mustache and checked the alignment of his suspenders. At the base of the tree, he looked up and found the woman's ample behind looming directly over his head. To see the rest of her, he had to shuffle over a step and saw that she had opened a book across her lap as if she were sitting at a train station. Senora, could I be of assistance, he asked. The woman thanked him for inquiring, but said she'd been looking forward to this day for some time, and was perched there so serenely with her open book and cigar that Julio wished her well, and he went home for some beans. That's the opening chapter of Ways to Disappear, read by Idra Novi, who joins me here in the studio, along with Martin McInnes. Welcome to both of you. Thanks uh, for having us. I assume you didn't know about each other before Correct, coming yeah. into the studio, but there are extraordinary similarities or resonances between these two novels, aren't there? Yes, and in fact, Martin's novel begins with an epigraph from a novel I translated. The great Clarice Lispector, and we will yep. come to her a bit later because I have also been on the trail of Clarice Lispector, as you would be having read both of these books, although I didn't actually know that you had that epigraph, Martin, because I'm reading a proof in which yeah, that epigraph in the proof. didn't happen. Yep. So it's like a sort of invisible trace that comes mm. out, sings out of the novel. Yeah. Anyway, let's just start with asking you both what drew you to the theme of disappearance, a sort of short answer to this, Idra. In history, literary history, women writers have tend to disappear from the record. I think that that's true across the world. I think it continues to be true, certainly with Latin American women writers and with writers, you know, in, in the United States as well, where I write. And translators also disappear from the record. So I came to fiction as a person who was somewhat fated to disappear as both a female writer and as a translator. And I was thinking a lot about the political and personal ramifications of disappearance and how when you can't see someone and they disappear in their absence, you have to fill in the silhouette, the sliver of what you did know about that person. And when you only saw a little bit of someone and they're gone, you realize how little of them you actually allowed yourself to see. Martin, I imagine it means something slightly different for you. Yes, I think the trope of missing persons is, is so giving for a novelist to write about missing persons as a verb, grief, longing, bereavement. But for me, I was really thinking about biology and a redrawing of the, the outlines of the body. So a psychological and biological change in the idea of a self. We'll come back to that a little bit later. We've just been introduced to Beatriz Yagoda. Is that how it's pronounced? Beatriz Yagoda, yeah. Oh, there you go. You've got perfect Brazilian <laughs> accent, obviously, being a translator in Brazilian. And that's the only sighting we actually, direct sighting we actually get of her. The novel's protagonist, actually, her translator, Emma, and her two children, grown-up children, her son and her daughter. Mm. Her son, who's a bit of a charmer, and her daughter, who's very understandably prickly. And in a way, this is a story about who owns the memory of people who owns the reality of somebody. Well, you know, when I wrote the book, I didn't realize this parallel would come to pass. But with the Ferranti books, there's been a similar parallel in that since we don't have a physical representation of Elena Ferrante, we keep seeing her translator step in as a more visible person. And I think that if the novelist that I created, that I made up in my novel, didn't disappear, the translator would have never been visible in the newspaper. So I wrote this novel. And in the strange way how reality can sometimes imitate fiction, it has somewhat played out in, in the invisibility of Ferrante's author and then seeing her translator become incredibly visible. So I didn't predict that that would happen, but it was really interesting to see something that I had made up then play out with Elena Ferrante's work. Is there a history of translators in fiction? I was trying to think of previous examples of it. There is a bit of a moment for translators going on at the moment, isn't there? 
Well, Mario Vargas Llosa has a novel that's called The Bad Girl, and the translator in it is a inhibited person who needs to latch on to a bad girl because he himself doesn't have a lot of personality in his own right. And and I remember reading that, and it didn't quite land with my experience because I am a translator and I'm a bad girl. And so <laughs> I think that I thought I needed to sort of shift the paradigm because the translators that I know are incredibly adventurous people who've lived all over the world and have lived really worldly lives lives and are some of the least inhibited people I know. And so I think for a lot of novelists, you end up saying, you know, I'm going to write the book I want to read. And I wanted to read a book about the adventurous, big hearted translators who I've come to know. Emma notably leaves her boyfriend and goes off to Brazil to go on the trail of Beatrice. Well, he's um, a bit of a dullard, yes. He's a bit of a dullard, yeah, she, she does. But she, she sort of throws over her life and just just goes off and then has a steamy affair with Beatrice's son. There's, is this, how much is this autobiographical of you, you the translator? What is your life, your story? Well, I came to translation as a writer first and I've only ever translated one book by any one writer. So unlike Emma, her whole life has been tied up with the identity of this writer who she goes to find. Whereas I think my identity was always first as a writer and second as a translator. And I was drawn to books that I thought would feed my writing. It was more the Borges model of a translation. I think he often translated works that fed his own writing. And Clarice Lispector was a translator also. So, so that was a different thing. And I've been married to a Chilean man for almost 20 years. So I've never had a marathon running American in my house. So that actually was completely... <laughs> Completely invented. <laughs> so of course, it's an awful question always to ask a novelist, but the one that one has to ask as a journalist. Yeah, I would like to think I'm more of a post-national writer than a strictly American writer, because I've lived abroad quite a bit, and I speak only in Spanish at home with my family. So, so you translate so. from Brazilian and Spanish? Both, yes. I've both. translated from both languages, yeah. yeah. In a way, it's, it's a very literary novel, and it obviously has precedence. You can see echoes of Lispector in it, and it's also about how language defines us. Yes, I think those were the ideas that I was really interested in writing about. But I was I went to the Globe this morning to do the tour at the Globe. And there was a line, I think it was from John Davies, who said that it was for citizens to feast their wits. And I was like, oh, I think that's what literature and plays any narrative form continues to be. You know, you want your citizens to feast their wits. So although I wanted to write about these ideas, I wanted there to be that feast for the reader's wits and for my own wits to feast on as I was writing the book. So I think that that's the other thing about writing about a disappearance is that intrigue keeps you reading. And actually, I think intrigue kept me writing because I was making up the mystery of the novel as I went. So I think I was feasting my wits and with the, also the notion that hopefully the readers, as I think when you write about a disappearance, it is a feast for the wits. And intrigue and disappearance also yeah. summon up lots of popular genres, don't they? The detective novel, in your case, there's a sort of gangster element in it, isn't it? Oh, yes. They get embroiled with all sorts of bad types. And it's really quite, it's very fast paced. I, I might have made it sound as if it's a literary exercise. It absolutely isn't or that, that is only part of it. It's funny, I thought I would have the most pleasure writing the translator, but I actually loved writing a, about a loan shark. I think <laughs> my favorite part of the book was writing the ransom notes. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you also, you, part of your structure is very, very short chapters. Well, I came to fiction from prose poetry. And so I think the tone of the novel, the slippery realism of it is a tone that I think is common in prose poetry. And so I think I was trying to write these discrete chiseled sections. And I, I don't know if in our current era it's as necessary to have connective tissue in fiction. You don't need, you know, your writer to take you from the hallway into the party. I'm just like, 
Take me to the party. You know, just Mm -hmm. go to the party. So I think we don't really need to be walked down the hallway. We don't need to hang our coat on the wall. Let's just get right to where the cocktails are. Well, this is entirely (laughs) relevant to your novel, Martin. There is such an amazing coincidence here, which is that when I was in the pursuit of these novels, I went, obviously, to The Passion According to G.H., which is one of the great. It's a 1964 novel by Clarice Lispector. And there was this paragraph, which is different. Was it that book that you have your epigraph from? Well, it's a different line to your epigraph, which, as I said, I haven't seen. And its paragraph is, the room was the opposite of what I had created in my house, the opposite of the soft beauty that came from my talent for arrangement, my talent for living, the opposite of my serene irony, of my sweet and exempt irony. It was a violation of my quotation marks, of the quotation marks that made me a citation of myself. The room was the portrait of an empty stomach. Oh, wow. Did you know that line? um, (laughs) I've read the novel several times, but not for a couple of years. Well, this is... You know, this is the point at which I have to bring in the infinite ground because actually that is, in a way, a description of your novel, isn't it? The room is a portrait of an empty stomach. Let's have a little reading which will explain this connection. Okay. And it's when the inspector has invited in forensics. Yeah, Isabella, a forensic scientist, is speaking to the inspector. She's been working on some forensic reports of the empty office. I'm going to go with this, inspector, because I want you to have an understanding of what it was like to be Carlos what may have happened to Carlos. There's no clear distinction between him and the room, inside and out. Likewise, no neat separation of physical and mental parts. There was nothing he could do about that. He couldn't decide, say, to no longer have anything to do with the life of the room. He would still be thinking via the life of the room. It's harder to see his shape harder to locate him. There isn't a freestanding identity surveying its environment, Inspector. I think he'd seen that. He was living under the pressure of the realisation, his old image rapidly eaten away. Definition was his problem. None of him was solidly drawn. His skin came loose, rich and fertile in microbiota. He sloughed off. His immunity was weak, no longer doing its job to any reasonable standard. It wasn't sealing him, wasn't asserting his identity, so he was vulnerable, exposed, wide open to the world. This happened to all of him. You can imagine how terrified he was of the city. He was forever ill. He was a segment of environment, he was almost nothing. Take a cup, scoop some air, that's what he was. How are you going to find that? You say people in the office forgot about him. Stop taking notice? I'm not surprised. They probably couldn't see him. I'm guessing the way he carried himself was dictated by his illness. He would have looked quite small, sitting low at his desk, his clothes blending with the furniture. I wouldn't blame the colleagues, wouldn't accuse them of negligence. It was perfectly natural, I imagine, to see nothing there but an empty office. He believed it himself. Are you surprised he disappeared? Think of the image most people carry of themselves in the front-facing third person. A man and a landscape clearly defined. But he couldn't think like that anymore. 
So that idea of him being a segment of the environment, mm. uh, this is so interesting to me because just earlier this year, rather amazingly again, coincidentally, I wrote a blog about predicting what I thought the next trends would be. And my suggestion was the next trend was going to be about the microverse within the environment, within really? the body. Right. And I've seen it coming up in factual books. And, I, and my end line was it can only be a matter of time till the first novel of this type comes up. And this is the first novel about this subject. Yeah, um, I can't remember the author, but there's a non-fiction book, Gut, which was a bestseller across Britain. Extraordinary. I was aware, I mean, I've been researching and thinking about this independently, not necessarily for a novel, for about 10 years. And I was aware that this is going to feature in more, more and more fiction. And that was an added pressure to me. I wanted to get this out. So why? Um, why is it that this theme is in the air at the moment? I think one of the things when you're, when you're looking at the microbiology of, of the self is you have to guard against sublimation and other reasons for doing that you know there's, there's always psychological correlatives for these things it's so knotted and intertwined and that's fascinating for a writer i think and in the age of digital proliferation things are becoming very rarefied i think there is a very basic impulse to look at stuff as well and to look at biological stuff and the science is accelerating really quickly particularly the science connecting gut microbiology with psychological factors so like Idris' book, this mm. links in one direction to very cutting-edge science, but in the yep. other, it links to all those pathology dramas on telly at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, sure, yeah. They're definitely playing off tropes from detective series and, and things, yeah. And not just crime, also horror science fiction, I think, are there, and tropes from travel writing as well. Idris said she enjoyed setting out with a missing persons story, partly to entertain herself as she was writing and to, to see where, where it would lead her and to, to challenge her own wit. That was the same for me. I didn't necessarily know where we'd end up rather than it would be in the forest. And I liked coming up with many competing and contradictory explanations for what happened. I think setting out with an investigation lends a purpose to a venture as well. So we should say that this book is divided in two sections. And yep. the first section is in this corporation, in this office. And then the inspector's inquiry takes him out into the forest, which mm -hmm. is in an unnamed Latin American, South American country. So it has a, there's an outside environment and an internal environment. Yes, the internal environment in the first part, obviously a pun with the word corporation relating to corpus as well. And I should say with, with Idra as well, I'm not, I don't make any claims for verisimilitude regarding Latin America. My reasons for including the setting, an unnamed country in Latin America, were really literary history, Lispector, but also techniques for magical realism, which I think you also alluded to. And with the novel about biology, I wanted to be near to the, the biological core of, of the earth, I suppose, the place of greatest biodiversity. So these are both novels that very much are aware of the literary history, and we've talked a little mm. bit with you, Idra, about that. But another the novelist I was thinking of was Conrad and the Heart of Darkness, because in a way, mm. the inspector goes into the heart of darkness, doesn't he, in his, yes. in his search? This book also finds its way to the Amazon River and mm. the shrinking biodiversity that is, mm, you know, sure. the yeah. richest biodiversity, which is shrinking with all yeah. the logging and burning down of the Amazon. It's, it's interesting how Amazon, the company, keeps getting larger as the actual Amazon <laughs> gets smaller. Yeah, I read. I some found of, that to be mm. sort of a sad 21st mm. century irony. Yeah. <laughs> Your novel, Martin, is not, yeah. it's not easy because there is such an absence at the centre of it. It's not like Idris. Idris is, is there's sort of good old sexual comedy going on and there's jealousy and they're human things. Mm. But you absolutely put an absence at the heart of yours. I know that's, that's really come to my knowledge in the last couple of weeks as I've been hearing reports from people that have read the novel. I wasn't 
quite aware how disorienting or perhaps distressing in parts the, the lack of things to hold on to can be. That for me was a very instinctive way of writing and I was thinking of Lispector as well. It can be infuriating to read. But I think, you know, at the beginning of The Passion, according to mm. G.H., Lispector has disclaimer to the reader who says that this book was, you know, painstakingly difficult to write and says to the reader, it may be so for you reading it. Mm. And yet, you know, I think when you take a risk like that as a writer, that those books are pushing fiction forward in really bold and radical ways. And so... I Another think thing you said earlier about the state of fiction just now not requiring the author to lead the character into the room. Especially as it was a debut, I, I couldn't straight up have my characters there without in some way mocking the idea of having characters. So we have reconstructions of events. We have actors portraying characters. And as much as anything, an admission of my own partial unease with writing a novel. I what? had a similar unease. Really? I, I mean, I think because I came to fiction from poetry and from translation, and I kind of threw all of those things into this book. And I think Lispector was also emboldening for me in that she kind of sets a match to the house of fiction and then just stands mm. there for 200 pages and watches it burn down. And I think that I wanted in my own way to do that, to say, you know, I don't. these chapters don't have to read like fictional chapters. And there can be a chapter that is three sentences, and there can be a chapter that's four pages. And, and I, I think that saying, you know, you don't. You can eschew the rules. You can make your own rules for fiction, and that's yeah. the way to make the most dynamic, exciting fiction that we can. Is to say, well, what hasn't the novel done yet? What could it do next? Martin, I haven't talked at all about where you've come to this from. What's your background? How old are you? Um, I'm 33. I, I studied Virginia Woolf for the last 10 years. I've been working part time in bookshops just so that I could spend the rest of the time writing and researching. So I. I, I didn't publish for a long time, and then three or four years ago I started getting stuff published, won a couple of prizes, and then my first book deal last year. Because I know about you, because somebody, I was on a prize jury for a scholarship, and you were put forward for it, although you weren't eligible because yeah. you hadn't published anything. <laughs> and I've yeah. sort of been w waiting for you to, mm. to break the surface ever since. <laughs> um, I want to just tease out a bit more this thing about the, it being part of the future. Where, how much are these novels part of the future, and how much are they part of the past? I mean, they're obviously very beholden. They're very literary novels. They carry their literary history on their sleeves. But then your thing about novels not needing to have connective tissue anymore. Well, actually, I think they do, don't they? I mean, what do you mean by that? And to what extent can we break down the connective tissue without actually divorcing them from the humanist tradition, which is the novel? Well, you know, I think on your phone or on the computer, we're often operating if there's several things happening at once. And, you know, you don't need to just stay in one voice and in one perspective. You know, that I think we switch often between various perspectives. You can be reading the news and you can be reading about a friend and you can have your email. And so you have all these different um, narratives going on at once. And so I think that maybe fiction in keeping in sync with the way we operate so much when we're looking at a screen can also play with these narratives, both distracting and feeding each other. Because I think they do. I think they all start to sort of feed each other. And I think instead of trying to keep them apart, you can see how they might illuminate each other. In, in the book, I played a lot with these radio announcements, which I kind of thought as prose poems, though that they are radio announcements. They're sort of exaggerated. And I think there's a rich tradition in Latin American literature of playing with register. And mm. you can have a very literary, lush description. And then it's followed with something that is, you know, maybe some sex in a taxi. And then you can go back and, and do an extended metaphor about human existence. And why can't those things coexist in the same book? So. And you also have dictionary definitions, which sort of are not quite dictionary definitions. They're slightly too poetic for dictionary definitions. Yes, also, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of mock, de mock <laughs> definitions, which I, my, my whole thought with those definitions to show the limits of definitions, you know, and to play with them too. So that, you know, a definition that begins with a straight definition of the Latin root of the word could end with, you know, a chicken urinating on your shoe.
Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And you do, the list comes up a couple of times, and it's the list of the possible things that might have happened. None of which we know are true. I'm not sure if it was in the proof, but ultimately number 29, the same age as the missing character. There were originally about 50, and I was quite self-indulgent to write. I really enjoyed writing that, but it was an interesting clash. Like Idris says as well, the tradition in Latin America of mixing registers. I liked having more lyrical writing next to bearer mechanical report writing, and then somewhere between the two with the, the 29 What Happened to Carlos iterations. I think you're right. We can play and, and have fun and do things that interest us and keep us going as writers as well, and including these report features is one way of doing that. But it, it also has a serious side, doesn't mm. it? I've, I've noticed this in international literature. For example, Han Kang, the Korean novelist, yeah. in her novel Human Acts, she absolutely won't finalise anything. And what she's dealing with is an atrocity in which there are no final answers. And so you have to find a way of describing what went on, which honours the fact that nobody knows what happened. And similarly, there's an Indian writer, Meena Kandasamy, the gypsy goddess, who wrote this massacre. And the only evidence for who the people are is the bones the description Mm. of the bones that are found and so lists become something about modern identity don't they where everything is just too big nothing is really known absolutely i think there's an honesty in um acknowledging uncertainty i think you know there's lots of uncertainty what's happening in europe what's happening in in the united states right now i mean how trump managed to become a presidential candidate It, it it raises a lot of questions about the united states and where we are and where we're going as a country and so i think that it's a time when if, if, if a novel doesn't any kind of art, whether it's poetry or play or novel, if you don't acknowledge uncertainty and you're not comfortable with incorporating uncertainty, I don't know if it rings true the same way. And so I think that figuring out how to convey the nuances of uncertainty is something that fiction can do that seems in sync maybe with where we are with democracy now. I'm convinced that at the end of my life, I'm going to have a complete crisis about what's happened. Uh, and I'm, I'm not <laughs> like, really? This, this is it? I, I didn't realise what was happening. It, it's all over. And, and that generates a kind of sort of narrative power as well. That's what I was trying to do here. We don't know what's happened, so let's proliferate ideas, none of which is true, but as a sort of self-propelling energy. We don't know what's happened, so there's this instead. To what extent does the novel have to entertain? And that, that's a question I'm always asking to myself. To what extent, you know, what, what compromises do you have to make to the reader? You don't make many compromises to the reader, Martin, in a way, do you? No, and this is probably going to get me into trouble, I suppose, <laughs> further down the line. I, I think there, there is a, a responsibility, but I, I have to hope that enough people are interested in, in the same or in similar ideas to me and in doing similar things with the work as, as I am and hope that I've given enough to, maybe entertain is the wrong word, but to... To engage or, or deeply interest enough people, I, I hope so. Yes, and entertain and engage, those are words that would absolutely be distinct in Clarice Lispector's age, weren't they? That it wasn't just about entertaining. No, not at all. And I don't, I don't know if she set out to do that, and I don't think that I did either. When I, I wrote these chapters, if I could predict what was going to happen in the chapter, I just deleted it. You know, I think I'm a deleter. I think maybe because I've come from poetry, I'm very comfortable with the delete button. I don't, I press it a lot. And if I, if I'm not surprising myself, then I'll just get rid of it. I think there's no surprise for the writer. There's no surprise for the reader. And if I wasn't surprising myself, then I was like, well, why bother? And so I think I wasn't compromising with myself. If I didn't think that there was something that felt like a genuine risk to me emotionally in a chapter, I just got rid of it. Idra Novi and Martin McInnes. Ways to Disappear is published by Don't Books and Infinite Ground is out from Atlantic.
And now to Eileen Miles, who has been called the rock star of modern poetry and is regarded as one of the most iconic voices in queer feminist writing for her work over the last four decades. She's never shied away from hard topics in her poetry. AIDS, gender inequality, bad sex and badder drugs and has become a cultural icon, even being fictionalised as a character on the TV show Transparent. She joined Sean Kane to talk about two of her books, Chelsea Girls, a coming-of-age novel told in snapshots of the life of one Eileen Miles, and I Must Be Living Twice, a collection of poetry both new and old. She began by reading That Country, a poem about an American in England. I've just never known what to call that country. If I say England, I don't think I sound so smart. I keep tripping up on their language, which is English, so shouldn't their country be the same? Britain seems wrong. Does anyone go to Britain? People go to London, that's where they go. There's really no country at all, just a city, huge, old, haven't been there for a while. And UK is just a concept, a fashion statement, an economy. It seems you could have a relationship with that, but you wouldn't go there. You would elude. Though it includes everything, doesn't it? The UK, Ireland, Scotland, England, all of it. England is right in there, but no place else, which is why I never say it. But what about the language they speak, English? My penmanship sharpens up. I go to school. Slowly the words appear on a line. Could I write in that language, think in it? Do I? Am I missing something? I really think a lot. The second L and really staggered into a Y. The letters got drunk. I wanted to fuck up this language and blame its nameless homeland. The victors got drunk. They came and came. The words were never the same again. In the last century, it came to us to speak American, which means to speak where you land, which means nothing now. Not proud, but invasive. Not the language, not the place, not them, not us. Neither an island, nor a continent, nor a world. A spin without a home. An edgy feeling. A coin on its side speaking up. So this is the first time that your books, uh, Chelsea Girls and your poetry, have been published in the UK. But is this your first time in the UK? No, no, I've been here several times. I mean, once in the 70s, a million years ago, and then I think about three years ago, the Serpentine had me come for a poetry marathon. And, mm. and what's your yeah. relationship with the UK? Because obviously you have quite a, uh, from that poem, you have quite yeah. a intense relationship with the language. <laughs> well, it's very, it's very good now. It's very, I mean, I think the first time I came here, I didn't get it, and I didn't quite like it so much. Mm. But when I came back probably the first time a few years ago, I suddenly was very excited because there's the, there's the nearness to the U.S. and then the radical difference. So there's something really very exciting about the way the two cultures are related and then not related at all, you know, and, it, and it's a different language. It's an utterly different language. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so much of the, both the language and also the events covered in your book seem very American, mm -hmm. particularly in Chelsea Girls. There's this sort of depiction of uh, growing up in the 1960s in America and then 1970s New York and the, mm -hmm. uh, the poverty and the, the AIDS and the lifestyle, the drugs and uh, everything that you, uh, I'm guessing you actually did experiment with. More, more or less, yeah. I mean, I just feel like the act of writing, whether it's poetry or prose, is this radical witnessing. I mean, you want to do it in language and so that piece is important too, but it still is that you're taking these shots of moments. I mean, I think a poet named John Clare 
who I've loved so much, who wrote, I guess he wrote the 19th century, and he wrote about, you know, enclosure, you know? Marxists love his work, not because they care about poetry, but because they care about history and politics. And I think we're doing that whether we know it or not. You know, there's a generation right now that does not know what it was like to have all your friends die, you know? And that was just a daily thing for us in the 80s and 90s. Do you feel today that uh, poetry still holds that ability to act as a witness, to sort of document what is happening in a time? I think even more, even more. I think because of social media, we're all used to bites and little quick pieces and fragments. And I think people are really seeing the sense of poetry now in a way that was even less clear in the past. I actually um, heard something really interesting that you said about social media, which is uh, I thought was fantastic because you're quite a uh, passionate user of Twitter. I love it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I read a really great uh, thing that you said about how Twitter forces a certain economy with words and it, it blends very well with poetry when you're a poet. Yeah, yeah. Well, as opposed to Facebook, which is rants, mm. you're like, oh, do I want to hear all this? You know, and then somebody reacts and then somebody else reacts and stuff. And I, there's something so concise about Twitter where you just it is it is formal in the same way that one could you know like a sonnet is 14 lines no matter what else you think it is and Twitter has that same kind of objectification of language you know Mm. the whole is only this big. Do you take a certain amount of pleasure in sort of crafting a tweet as you would say a a short poem? Not as much as some people do I mean I think I might be a little more careful on Instagram with my pictures than I am with my tweets Mm. you know but I think that's part of the I I, I feel it seems necessary to be reckless with language Mm. in a way and yet you are still being you're still conforming to length and that's great and it's reassuring to everybody that this person will not go on too long (laughs) so that's enough from you you know yeah which is great (laughs) i've got to say it's actually it's almost as fun researching you as it is reading you because you've had (laughs) such a varied career you've been an essayist and you're a poet and you've written libretti Uh and you're a fiction writer I mean, let's start with Chelsea Girls, um, sure. because uh, th- that, that came out in 1994, right. but has just been republished with Echo in the US yes. and published for the first time in the UK with Serpent's Tale. What was it like revisiting it for the release now? You know, I mean, exciting, because I mean, actually, there was something frustrating about writing a book that you loved and having it published and having it make a certain kind of splash. And then I think because the, the first wonderful little publisher, Black Sparrow. They were Bukowski's publisher, and they ceased to exist, I think, in the early 20th century. And I I just decided to let it hibernate until the right publisher came along. So when it came back out, I was very happy and and validated because I knew it was an important book. And, you know, I had to wait like a decade, I think, before it came, you know. So it was like very exciting, you know, and, and the reception has been terrific. I mean, I think there might be even this talk of a movie. Oh, really? Even, which seems very right. I mean, like a lot of it is, it it does feel like sort of snapshots because they can be quite short chapters that pick up, uh, say, in your childhood or then it goes to New York and Mm -hmm. then it goes back. And it does feel very uh, autobiographical. Is it, do you view the Eileen in this book as more fact than fiction or are you quite detached from the Eileen? Um, she's, She's both me and not me, you know? I mean, like, I think she's sort of like smarter and more loudish and more introspective and more vulgar. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? It's very funny. Even writing about sex, it's sort of like all the sex I've had in my life, but I've written about that sex. So it's very, there's, there's a cherry picking of your own memory and existence. And also, certainly if I didn't remember something, I would make something up, you know, it just, you know, or didn't like the way something ended, I would send it over there. So it's a pastiche of, of experiences. But the funny thing is, it really, too, is just that I didn't quite know how to write prose at that time. And so I really thought of it as, as kind of films, you know, like just going to places. I think I loved 
Truffaut movies that were kind of narrating a boyhood. And I thought, well, my lesbian boyhood should be told too, like this, you know? So it was like little brief films, I thought. You document a lot of like your personal life, Mm -hmm. your sexual relationships and ex-girlfriends and things like that. Were they things you had to sort of negotiate with the people around you? Well, I just sort of guessed what people wouldn't like to hear about. But then, I mean, obviously I did, there were things that are in there that I, I learned quickly that you do, when when you have to change names, when you have to think twice about you know getting sued by somebody, and then also just things where I just didn't want that effect to be in the world, mm. you know, whether it was my family or a friend or a former lover. You know, I just had to step away from some stuff, obviously. But then you, to read it, you think, what could it be? <laughs> <laughs> it came out in '94. So, yeah. what was the reception like then when it first came out? Oh, really, really good, really good. Because it was just—I mean, it was very much documenting quote our life. You know, it was like pretty close to, even though it was it was in the '90s and I was writing about the '70s and '80s. You know, it's sort of like it was still pretty quick and pretty close to that time and so it just it seemed very I think and also it's vernacular Mm. you know and I think that's important you know I mean I think a vernacular kind of is the punk of language you know which is that we don't talk the way that we write necessarily and I think as, as soon as I heard about dialects I thought well certainly dialects aren't simply for people of color you know it's sort of like there was an understanding in the 60s and 70s that this black English but I was like, but what about other white Englishes, you know? Mm. I mean, like you have it in the UK with Irvine Welsh. But in the States, very avoided because it's, we're talking about class when we talk about vernacular. So do you think people avoid it in the US because they feel it might be too touchy, it's too tied in with race? Well, no, not with race, with class. I think right. pe- publishers, I think, are afraid to look stupid. Oh, right. You know, it's like bad English. That's like we're letting white trash write books now. What's this? You know, and <laughs> and of course, it's never it's never one English. It's a multiple. It's always a multiple being cobbled together. And I think that's the fun of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's taken a while in a way to make that argument that that's what's happening. I mean, I think when, when I was first published, I think they were like eh, female Bukowski. Yeah. And I was like, no, that's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's like I think with time, you get to make your argument better. I read something that suggested I, I don't know if this actually happened and whether it was with Chelsea girls that you. You said that when you first submitted to some publishers, there was this sort of attitude of maybe having to fix a bit of your writing. Oh, I still, yeah, I still battle with that a bit. Really? You know, just when I think I don't have to, I have to do it again. Is that yeah. because of the very formal way that we treat English as opposed to the sort of style and rhythm of how you write? It's, it's, it's about print. It's about what happens. We're, you know, we're allowed to kind of talk as we talk and, and put things together as we like in the moment but somehow when it gets onto the page that's when it's the real challenge of value and intelligence and class codes I think it makes people very nervous you know I've yet to have the experience of having a story in the New Yorker and I heard they put you through hell really yeah I mean do you think that people now reading Chelsea Girls would be reading it with a very different set of goggles to the audience that you had in 94 yeah, I think so. I think things have loosened up, and I think people, in terms of what's fiction and what's nonfiction, too, those boundaries, I think, have really loosened. And because I think because of some, you know, younger practitioners, whether it's Maggie Nelson or Ben Lerner, or you know, there's a lot of people writing right now who are using lives very much like their lives. Uh, we actually had Maggie Nelson on the podcast, and uh, in the Argonaut, she mentions you and it's, uh, recalls your teaching style as being uh, smacked in the face with a pizza. <laughs> well, 
I want having been on the side of the throwing the pizza. I don't know what it feels like. So. But Maggie's a good friend and and I have somebody whose work I absolutely adore. So mm. it's so great to keep being affiliated. Why do you think we're more okay with that blurring of, of fiction and nonfiction today? Is it just because of history of publishing and we've gotten more used to it? Or? And I think I think the, how we consume culture and and I think reality TV and I think I mean everything that's you know there were things in the '60s that were equivalents to you know there was a TV show called The Loud Family, an American family, which was like a kind of a Warhol-esque, just holding a camera to a family and watching them fall apart, you know. But I now, now it's very, I mean, and obviously we all have our phones and we're just documenting everything. And so I think we're all a lot, much more both open and suspicious about what's true and what's not true. And so I think we start to look at our genres and literature differently too. Mm. It's weird that literature is always slower than the visual realm though, of course. So I think we're learning from them mm. in a way and then getting a, a greater permission to kind of be yeah we'll talk about i must be living twice sure do you enjoy the process of curation and compiling a poetry collection yeah yeah because it's like it's like your greatest hits it's sort of like i like this i don't like that and you know and liking changes in time and it's fun to you know like see what you've accumulated i mean in the art world it would be called a retrospective and there were several levels to that it's that around 2007 i put one together and then that's not what happened two new books happened and then i had to reshuffle it again and each cut each shuffle is different so that's very exciting you know and then the publisher was like I, I think I put together a selected, and then he was like, why not a new and selected? And I was like, no, I don't like that. And then I was like, hmm, what would that be like? And then that changed it again. And by that time, the, the title changed again, too. So it kept being a different book, which is very, I mean, it's like hearing about Kanye West's new music. You know, oh, it's just right. like there is no there is no permanent version. And mm. I think we're all like that. But a book, finally, you know, it's got to go to print. Yeah. So that's what we have. It's, but it's still only a photograph of a moment. And you find that process quite exciting rather than overwhelming or sort of looking at a whole career's worth of writing, finding that stressful. Well, of course, there's moments where it's overwhelming and you look at it and you think I've completely made a mess and this is absolutely wrong. But you can't, you know, you can't stay there because you have to go forward and do things and do something else, you mm. know. I read that you enjoyed getting to reorder things in a way that you didn't originally get to present them at the time of publication. Yeah, and even there, the publisher will say, I think this poem should go first, and that was not my idea. And so you get to fix that 20 years later. Now, there's a, there's a particular poem that's quite iconic, quite famous of yours, called An American Poem, mm -hmm. and it talks about US politics and uh, the Kennedys in particular. And you ran for presidency. You did a presidential campaign in 91, 92. I did. Can you explain that? What, well, what I call, that? at the time I called it an openly female campaign. <laughs> Because they just, we just didn't even deal with the fact that all these candidates are guys. I mean, I think America is at an amazing precipice right now, mm -hmm. you know, where we, I think we're probably going to have a female president, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was, you know, it was like a lot. I mean, it was like, it was AIDS, it was homelessness. There was just so many issues going on, which I, as a poet, didn't know if I felt entirely entitled to write about, or I didn't quite know how to go in there and, and state these facts. But when I formed the conceit of being a Kennedy, I suddenly had complete permission. I was just a Kennedy coming out and saying, wait, I have to admit, I've been here, I've been watching, and here's what I've got to say. So, And also, I, I you know, in the States, I have a Boston accent, mm -hmm. and so people always think they're sort of geniuses. They, I read and they go, are you from Boston? You know, <laughs> and, um, and so I used it in the poem, which was really, which was quite fun. Yeah. yeah. 
you, you mentioned Hillary Clinton's campaign. What is it like at, at the moment in America watching this unfold? Well, it's very, you know, it's the most combative election that I can remember, you know, because, um, because Sanders, you know, represents the politics of lots of us, you know, and the question for me is, is practically speaking, can he do that? And then looking at Hillary Clinton, it's like, can she do that? You know, and I'm of the tribe who say she can do it. And I don't think he could do it, you know. And so even though sometimes I agree with his political stances more than hers, I believe in her as a politician more than I believe in him, you know. I mean, having run for president, I know what a campaign that is flag-waving looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't expect to win. And, I, and you know, and I think, I think Sanders acts like he didn't ex I think he didn't expect to win. And now I think he's addicted to the concept. Mm. And so when, now that he's lost, he keeps acting like he's going to win. But I think he never had a, an adequate campaign. He never was going to walk into Congress and go, let's break up the banks. And they'll be like, okay, Bernie. You know, like I feel like it's kind of a mass delusion, his campaign, and it's, it saddens me. So I, I'm the bitter, the, but there's much bitterness in the States, mm. for sure. You know, yeah. I mean, people are still kind of not. And there's, like, there's a lack of excitement over the civil rights triumph of what it means for a woman to be the president of the United States. Mm. Whereas with Barack Obama, we all got it. Yeah. You know, and that's just, you know, like I don't think race trumps sex or sex trumps race, but somehow race always trumps. And I think there's, there's an unjustness to that. Mm. You know, I think we have to think hard about that, why we would not spew racism comfortably in middle-class society, but we certainly find sexism still kind of a little bit fun, a little bit hot. Mm. I was like, really? You know? Do you think you would, like, given perhaps the changes in the political landscape between sort of 91 and now, do you think you would ever do that again like even either just to make a statement or because your writing is often political would you ever do anything in politics again no I think once you've run for president you're sort of always running I mean we're talking about it you know it's sort of like I do know what it's like to be a candidate you mm. know and that's a kind of realm of experience that I'm really glad I have mm. you know I mean I think in a way everybody should run but um no no. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think looking at the situation in the States, lots of people should think harder about running locally. You know, like I live I live in New York City and I live in Marfa, Texas. And Marfa, Texas is in the high desert. It's an art town. It's a really great place. And there's a pipeline coming up through Mexico and fracking and all these environmental issues are huge right there. And because the local government is controlled by people who are conservative and the local hipsters did not think it was their responsibility to get it, get involved in local government, and so your water will be destroyed. You know, and that's the situation all over the states that leftists don't really think it's their problem to be on the school board or to be in city government, and now we have this mess. So I think it's, I think everybody should think about it, yeah. not just me 20 years ago. Do you, we were talking about before about poetry as witness and you said that it very much has a place today in terms of documenting political events or events of its time. Do you see, do you see much political apathy amongst the poets and young people in America at all? No, I mean I think um, Black Lives Matter and all the shootings that have occurred in the United States in the past few years have just charged people up because we all, again it's, it's social media, we all know that this is nothing new, that lynching is such a part of U.S. history and that men and women being randomly shot in the streets is something that the police department has been regarded as, you know, like just part of the job, you know, but it's sort of like people are so galvanized by this awareness, you know, and I think that's, you know, like, so I, I think racial politics are the most and economic ones are right at the top of the pile right now in the States and, and you know, environmental too, of course. Mm. 
I hope this is not insulting to you in any way, but the the political edge, <laughs> I know that's uh-huh. daunting, the political edge and sort of like the very wordy lyricism of your words, both in poetry and uh-huh. in, in fiction, it really reminded me of something like, say, Bob Dylan. Like who? Like Bob Dylan. I love uh, Bob Dylan. Oh, good. Okay, oh, glad. Huge. He's sort of my, uh, and in many ways, he's still kind of my favorite living artist, you yeah. know. I mean, because he's so he's so labile. He's such a mover. You mm. know, he keeps changing. Have you seen him live recently? Not. I mean, I think maybe about five years ago. I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, the voices. It's just like a phlegm fest. It's just like ah, you know. <laughs> but but the, I think the music. I haven't heard. I think he's got a Frank Sinatra record out. Now, yeah. Which I've got. I've got to hear. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm glad that it's not insulting to you because some people don't like Dylan, but it really, your words really do remind me of Dylan in a way, particularly in the poetry. Well, he composed an amazing way. Apparently he would tear um, pictures out of magazines and line them up and then be on his knees with his guitar and compose at the pictures. Mm. I mean, he really was like right working as a poet and I think as a master of media. If you read his interviews, they're crazy. They're really good. Most often you're sort of referred to as a poet, but you've done so many things. Do you align yourself most closely with poetry or? Yeah, I mean, I think everything, poetry is like the hellhole. I mean, I think everything comes out of poetry. I mean, I feel like anything I've learned, any ways of of organizing information or intelligence comes out of poetry. It's sort of like everything else is, and everything else is a way to make a living in a way. I mean, it's not that I don't love writing novels, but I think part of my perception of writing a novel is, this will get me a house, you know, it's sort of, you know, or just, you know, there's just different um, ambitions with other genres, but poetry is just, it's like breath itself. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Idra Novi, Martin McInnes, Eileen Miles and Sean Kane. Next week, we'll be hearing from the indomitable Rose Tremaine on one of a series of Guardian Live events that we'll be tuning into over the summer. For more literary interviews, discussions and live events, search for Guardian Books Podcast. You can find us on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or even on your smartphone. Just spark up your favourite podcast app. But for now, from me, Claire Armitstead and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.